Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, um, we thank you this morning that you reveal yourself, that you make yourself known in your person, in your power, in your presence, and, and in doing so, you also reveal the posture of our own heart. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning your word would um, enter in, that it would search us out, uh, Lord, that it would warm the cold places of the heart, soften the hardened places, Lord, that we would be filled uh, with the good news of Jesus today, uh, to the end that we would enjoy you and glorify you, and that in praise and service of you, many, many would be blessed in this city and even beyond. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 1947, they say, was a seminal year in the world of art because that was the year that the artist Jackson Pollock decided to take the canvas off the easel and lay it on the floor. And, and the reason he did that was he said he was, he was tired of relating to art as something like a window to look into or to stand apart from and observe, but that it's better to relate to art as something you walk through that you enter into, that you're a part of. And, you know, I've kind of thought about that and thought, you know, that's not really a, a bad way to think about the Bible. That, you know, when we're taking up God's word, we're taking up that which we are called to enter into and to walk through, not only as its own story from which we stand apart, but really as our own story as well. Now, you heard me a minute ago, we're going to be covering about five chapters of Exodus this morning. Um, and, you know, we've read from just the first part of, of, you know, a very long passage having to do mostly with what's commonly known as the plagues that fall upon Egypt. And we're picking up in this place in chapter 7 with Moses and, you know, what I think is a really critical point in his life. Uh, we've seen much of Moses' life up to this point. We've seen how he's experienced a lot of failure. Uh, how he has been rejected not only from his own people, but from his adoptive people, the Egyptians. And, you know, that story is conveyed more in terms of facts than feelings, but I think it's important to look for some places where we get some clues to the heart of Moses. One of the places is right after things fell apart for him in Egypt and he fled to Midian and got married and has been shepherding his father-in-law's flocks, Moses seems to have arised, arrived at a point of essentially resignation, of looking at life going, this is as good as it gets for me. And, and you see that come through in what he named his son, which roughly translated means something like this, who'd have thought? <laughs> a resident alien in a foreign land. Who'd have ever thought that would be the story of my life? But all this gets turned upside down when God meets Moses as a flame in a bush that is not consumed and issues him a calling. And, and that marks another place, I think, where we get a clue to the heart of Moses uh, when he responds to the Lord's call uh, as one whose psyche had been carved into through, the experience, through bitter experience. And he essentially says to the Lord, you know, I'm the last person that you ought to be calling uh, to, to serve you. Um, I've screwed up before, and it is a certainty that I will screw up again. 
But the Lord persists, and he says, no, indeed, you're the man. I'm, I'm calling you. You're the man for the job. And so Moses takes up the call, and he, and he does go to Egypt, and he goes in front of the Pharaoh, and he tells, tells Pharaoh to let God's people go. And that marks yet another failure. Amazingly, here's a guy called by God, does what God calls him to do, and he fails. And not only does he fail, but, but as a result of his failure, what was already bad for his people gets worse. It kind of reminds me, Moses reminds me of the story of a, a buddy of mine told me about a guy he played football with, a friend of his who was the backup quarterback. And you know the existence of a backup quarterback, you're just always wanting to be the person in the game. And during the game, the starting quarterback, who also happened to be the star of the game, uh, there was a play and his pants got ripped and the backup quarterback knew the rules and he knew, you know, you can't play with a ripped uniform. This is my chance. I'm going in the game and he's getting ready, you know, and he's putting his helmet on and the coach comes over and, you know, and he says, oh, I guess you saw what happened to Jimmy's pants, right? And he goes, yeah, coach, I saw, I saw. And he goes, okay, well, we're going to need your pants. <laughs> you know, Moses is one of these guys even with, you know, what looks like opportunity and calling and everything else, he just can't seem to get in the game. And it's hard to understand exactly why unless we do a little, what I want to call noticing. It's a good way to read the Bible. Notice things. And one of the things you notice is that when God met Moses in all of his insecurity about, you know, the first thing Moses said is, I'm a terrible speaker. I can't speak can't go in front of the most powerful person in the world and convey words to him. And God graciously meets him in that place and he says, Moses, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. In fact, he, he, he tells him exactly what to say to Pharaoh. He, he says, go to Pharaoh and say this, thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That is the word that Moses is to convey to Pharaoh. Exactly. But notice that when they do get in front of Pharaoh, what they actually say is different. They say this, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. It's apparent that Moses and Aaron had a little sidebar conference to basically give Pharaoh something of the gist of what they imagined, you know, could be communicated to a man of such power and influence. You know, maybe on the logic that, well, we're going, we can't go to the most powerful person on the planet with all this stuff about Israel is my son, and if you don't let my son go, I'm going to kill your son. So, in essence, they didn't obey the Lord. They didn't give Pharaoh God's word. Instead, they did what many preachers are tempted to do, what many preachers do. They did a little wordsmithing, a little toning down here, a little playing up something about, we're just, we're having a picnic with a little worship, a little editing, hoping to make it all what they imagined would be maybe a little bit more palatable, a little more promising for success in the end. You know, because after all, we don't want to make powerful people like Pharaoh uncomfortable, right? And the effect of this was, again, to make that which was already bad worse. And so Moses fails again, even with the calling of God upon his life. 
Um, yet this time, the experience of failure is quite different. This time he doesn't run away. He runs toward. Uh, in chapter 6, he goes back to the Lord, and he comes away an utterly changed man. And what changes him, critically, isn't that he got a boost of self-esteem, but in fact, I would, I would argue quite the opposite. He had seen where his self-confidence got him. It takes quite a bit of self-confidence to go, I know the Lord said this, but I'm going to edit it a little bit and make it a little bit more palatable. But he becomes instead, gloriously so, graciously so, a man bereft of confidence in himself and bolstered by confidence in the Lord in the word of God. Moses came to discover that the power of the ministry of Moses is that there is no power in the ministry of Moses. But instead, as one commentator put it, he emerges as a man who has no other words than what the Lord has taught him, no other acts than what the Lord has commanded, and no position other than that of a man sent by God. So a really critical turning point, maybe one of the most important verses in the entire book of Exodus, comes in Exodus 7, verse 6, where it simply says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Editorially, I might add, finally. <laughs> so as we continue in this passage, I want to explore, I get into all that because I think there's an important connection between Moses' experience of personal transformation, which comes by way of the revelation of God, and what God intends to bring is missional transformation, which comes by the way of the word of God in sending these plagues upon Egypt. Because the plagues in themselves are revelation. They are revelation, and these are kind of the three things I want to pay attention to. Revelation of God's person, his person and all his power and his character. A revelation of, as God reveals himself, the posture of our own hearts. Our hearts are disclosed before him in his presence. And then finally, a revelation of the privileged place of people in God's plan. God revealing his person, revealing our hearts, and then revealing his plan of salvation for people. Now, as we look into this, it's helpful to know that what we commonly call the plagues are literally referred to as wonders. Um, they are, in other words, that which only God can do, uh, given to reveal his person, given to strike awe into those who bear witness of what he is doing. And, and it's important to see that because there is no shortage of television specials and you know, bookstores heaving with books, making the case that these plagues are essentially natural events that would have happened anyway. And, and it is true that God uses the, nation, the, the natural world, but he, call, he himself calls these acts wonders I will perform among them, using a very specific word that points to that which only God can do, which doesn't come about by just natural process. So, of course, you know, there are phenomena in which bacterial blooms happen in water that make it red and foul like blood, but the scripture says explicitly it wasn't like blood, it became blood. Not only the river, but in every little container around Egypt. If you had a glass of water on your counter, that became blood. And of course, there can be a connection between rotting heaps of frogs that draw gnats and then flies, and then that cascades into cattle diseases, which you know, then becomes you know, a problem with human skin afflictions. But aside from the fact that all these are attributed to God's hand, it should be pointed out that boils don't create hailstorms. And hailstorms don't create utter darkness over the land, right? 
So again and again, you see these things attributed to the Lord as his wonder, attributed to his hand, which signifies intention, intervention, and action. In fact, there are places where not only is God's hand referred to, but his finger, which you might say is something like the fine motor skills of God, that he's getting involved in the details detailed involvement and intervention, like when he puts a protective covering over his people or when he banishes flies from this one little region in Egypt and, or when he acts at appointed times or when he causes the winds to blow a certain way and bring in locusts. It's the finger of God, right? So even as we can't say that these things can't, can't or don't occur in nature, because they do, we might need to step back and rid ourselves of the notion that somehow, in some way, nature ever operates independent of its creator, of God's providence, of God's power. That is always true. The writer of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Nature is itself an ongoing wonder. And God affects even greater wonders here in in pouring out these plagues in intensifying succession, a plague of blood, of frogs, of lice, flies, animal diseases, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. And there's a lot to notice here in terms of the order of these things. I think they're organized as nine plagues and sets of three. There's distinctive things going on within that. I was going to tell you all that in this sermon. Um, I'm going to leave that, you know, for you to take me to lunch, and I will talk about it as much as you want to hear. Um, but, but, but stepping back for a second, I just think what we're really dealing with here, what I want to focus on with these plagues, is just, you know, a question. And the question is why? Why the plagues? Like, even if we're able to sit here, and even if you're with me up to this point, and you're agreeing with me, and you're nodding that, yes, um, these are wonders that demonstrate God's power. They demonstrate his rule and his reign. You know, we're still left with the question, well, why does he choose to rule and reign like this? Why, why the suffering? Why the misery? Why the grief? Why make an entire people endure escalating misery that, again, goes from water crisis to frog invasion to disease-inflicting trial of gnats and flies, to commercial devastation of livestock, to wide-scale environmental devastation of hail, to the terror of darkness, to the wrenching national grief that comes with the death of children. Why? And, and, and furthermore, making it even more complicated, why, as God implements a plan that seemingly is designed to kind of ratchet up the pressure so that there would be opportunity for repentance, and so that it would all be come to a halt, why does he say even before it even happens that the entire escalation plan will not work, that Pharaoh will not work on Pharaoh, and that it will culminate in the deliverance of his firstborn son, Egypt, uh, Israel, out of Egypt, and the deliverance of Egypt's firstborn over to death? In other words, why prolong a process when the outcome is predetermined? Why not just cut to the chase? And put an end to it. Well, setting aside a moment the fact that the Lord's ways are higher than ours, that he's the potter and that we are the clay, it does seem to me, and I, you know, I want to say this is something of a definitive statement, the Lord is never really ever about cutting to the chase. He, he is not slow as some count slowness, and he will communicate himself and his will 
according to his perfect timing and in his perfect way. God is concerned with revealing himself for his glory and our good, and, and he, he almost never cuts to the chase. I mean, we could all, many of us could tell stories about that, about how we've been on, we often talk about faith as not something instantaneous, but as something of a journey, of something that we had to walk through, that there was a process that God used, and, and even though there was difficulty and pain and things that we would never wish on ourselves again or certainly on others, that God used it to bring us to himself, right? God didn't cut to the chase in those stories. He didn't cut to the chase in in creation, did he? God certainly could have just said, everything is made. But he carried it out over time that we might learn of him, that we might learn of his character, of his creation, of our place in it, of our relationship with it and with him. And and I want to say he does something very much like that in redemption as well. We've, we've certainly already seen this in how he's been at work in the life of Moses. He doesn't instantly make Moses what he knew he would in time become. But he worked over his 80 years, and, and I, would, I would even argue over probably many years before Moses was even born, to produce the man that God would use uh, in his plan of redemption, right? And so while I don't want to diminish any of the agony that Egypt will endure, we shouldn't, we should at the same time, not overlook the kindness of God in dealing with Egypt actually in this way. Because had he chosen to cut to the chase with Egypt, that would have been very bad news for Egypt. No no one in Egypt was contemplating liberating God's people. Um, Their their guilt was clear. Um, In fact, not only was no one contemplating Israel's liberation, they were doubling down on the oppression. So God revealing himself through these wonders is something like the mercy of a warning shot. So that with each one, there is fresh opportunity for repentance, which works toward the redemption of his people. And I, you know, there's a lot of attention on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's unrepentance here. But in fact, the Bible tells us that many Egyptians did come to faith. And they were delivered along with God's people. If you look at Exodus 12, verse 38, the moment when Uh, Israel is being delivered. It says God delivered Israel out of the land and along with them a mixed multitude, which means a lot of non-Israelites, a lot of people bore witness to what God was doing in the land and they, they repented of their sins and they believed in God and they became integrated with God's people. And that's because, first of all, these plagues, these wonders revealed the person of God. You see this in Moses' first interaction with Pharaoh when Moses told him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh's response was pretty straightforward, and I want to say even at least the first part of it, a little refreshing, where he just says, well, who is the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The Lord comes to answer Pharaoh's question of who is he, In chapter 7, when Moses goes back to him to inform him that the Lord would contaminate the Nile, the the Nile being the river upon which the whole country depended so deeply that they worshipped the river as God, as a God at least. And God says, I'm going to show you actually that I'm Lord of this river. And the reason being that you will know that I am Lord. You see, the very first wonder shows that the Lord is greater than the Nile, that your life isn't upheld by a river. Uh, It's upheld by your creator who made that river. 
graciously for you. So he reveals himself as Lord, and also he reveals himself as Lord alone, uniquely. Uh, that truth is conveyed to Pharaoh as well through the, the plagues when Moses says that God is sending the plague of the frogs in, verse, in chapter 8, and also the hail. And the, the reasoning behind those plagues is so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. He's not one of many gods. He's not top of the heap. He is alone on the throne, right? So when he sends his plague of the flies, this, really, this is really conveyed in, in, in terms of not only his power, but his presence. That, that plague in particular uh, is unique because, because God says there will be flies upon the land except in this one area, except in Goshen. I'm going to make this area immune. And that's amazing enough. I mean, if you've ever had flies around. You can screen door your house. You can put bug zappers everywhere. They're getting in. So to preserve a whole region from them is certainly a picture of divine power. But God says, you know, it's not just, it's, it's, it's not just a display of my power. He refers to that particular plague as a sign. He explains that on that day, I will set apart Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarm of flies shall be there. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. So in that act, God reveals himself as present among his people, showing that what his presence makes for protection, blessing, thriving, with the coming of the seventh plague of hail, the Lord stresses that he will bring to bear the full force of his wonders. He communicates the full extent of his power uh, overall, over the king, his officials, all the people. He demonstrates that no power can be brought against him because all power is under him. And he goes on to express the truth of his sovereignty, not only in the here and now, but he actually communicates to Pharaoh my power over history. He tells the Pharaoh, for this, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that, you're, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh is who he is. He is where he is. He is when he is. He is what he is because of who God is and what God has chosen to do. And that brings us to maybe the most puzzling aspect of this whole passage, which doesn't have to do so much with the lordship of God sort of out there, as much as it has to do with his lordship with, of, of what's in here, of our hearts. I think one of the most challenging ideas in the whole Bible is this idea that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and not only that, but as a consequence of that hardened heart, visited plagues upon him. What are you supposed to do with that? Now, setting aside for a moment what we might think this says about God, I think it's important when you come to hard parts of the Bible, and I have a book in my office, which is like, I think the title is like Hard Sayings of the Bible, and this passage is in it. First of all, don't avoid them. Some of the richest stuff is in these hard parts. Uh, but also, I think when we're asking the question about what kind of God is this, we need to ask the question of ourselves, what, what kind of person am I? Why is this hard for me? Why am I resisting this? What is this saying not only about God, but what is it saying about me? Why, why is it that, you know, even if we can see that the Lord is God of all nature and time and history, when it comes to being like really Lord of my life, really Lord of my heart, I resist that a little bit. 
you know, because I like to be, I like to imagine I, that I am the master of my own heart. You know, that, that, I can, that I can captain my own ship, that I can write my own story, that my choices make for, you know, good and healthy navigation of life, right? I remember one time giving a talk when I was a church planter and we were talking about mercy ministry and, and someone said, you know, well, what if they're in the situation that they're in because of bad choices? And my answer to that was they are in the situation they're in because of bad choices. That's not the problem. The problem is, is you think you're in a good situation because of your great choices. And that's not true of any of us. If we're in a good situation, it's because of the grace of God. You know, and when it comes to the heart, all you need to do is pay a little attention even to the culture. Look at the top 10 hits at any given time in any given year, and it's all about the quandaries of the heart. You know, and you, you might begin to suspect that the heart is not so easily tamed. Is there anything as inscrutable and capricious as our hearts? We talk about our hearts in all kinds of ways, as being vied for, as giving them away, as being filled up, as pulled on, led astray, warmed, cooled, emptied, broken, and here, hardened. And again, Moses' story is not only instructive, I think it's pretty representative because here you have a guy, one moment disastrously overconfident in himself, and the next despairing and deriding what the Lord is doing in his life. Yo-yoing between. So, to, to begin to contemplate the workings of the heart is at least to know you're entering strange terrain. And I think that helps us understand why it is that Exodus doesn't tell us just one thing about Pharaoh's heart. It actually tells us three things about Pharaoh's heart. The first we've already seen, the Lord hardened it. It also says that Pharaoh hardened it. And it says that in the end, his heart became hard. There's always, I think, more than one story to tell about our hearts. So even though we, we may imagine that there's one narrative to the heart, and I'm writing it, the Bible asserts that, in fact, the Lord is the author of the story. He alone is God, that his reign and rule and plan and purpose doesn't exist in some kind of tension or some kind of competition with something so capricious and regularly disastrous as human choice. And I just want to say, hallelujah, because I don't know about you, but when it comes to making choices for myself, I can barely navigate the cereal aisle at the grocery store, <laughs> much less what is always best for me, maybe even less what's always best for you, and forget about what's best for the world, at least for a minute, if we're relying on our own hearts. And look, I don't think it's the greatest movie in the world, but you know, there was this Jim Carrey movie a while back called Bruce Almighty. Uh, and this is you know, this story about where Bruce you know, decided he wanted to be God, and God said, okay, I'll let you be God for a little while. And, and you know, I can't recall the whole plot, except that Bruce, like everybody, wanted to be God. And, uh, you know, and he, he, he gets divine power. And like a lot of us, he enjoys, you know, like a lot of our fantasies take us, he enjoys using it, mostly you know, for um, retribution. But then he realizes, you know, that along with that comes some responsibility. <laughs> comes, you know, concern for others, caring for others. And then he finds out actually being God's not so easy. We have inscribed in our confession, which is kind of a funny word, all it means is just a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, that God foreordains everything that comes to pass. 
which you know is kind of a, a long way of saying that the, the Lord alone is God, and that that's a good thing. As a friend of mine, you know, put it, if if anyone were to ever to write an account of human history, an excellent title would be "It seemed like a good idea at the time." But there's another truth affirmed in our confession, again, as a summary of the Bible, right alongside with God's sovereignty, and that is that he exercises that sovereign rule in such a way that he's not the author of sin and that he doesn't obliterate the will of his creatures. And and look, I know that in all of our post-enlightenment thinking, you know, the rationalist gears are turning right now because we're kind of sitting there going, I need resolution. I need to resolve this in such a way that God will settle it for us. But here's the deal. The Bible doesn't resolve it for you. It simply celebrates the sovereignty of God, even as it affirms that our choices actually do matter. And, you know, we're we're wading into some of the deepest biblical mysteries there are. Martin Luther calls this the strong wine of the gospel. But I suspect, you know, and there's much to say about it, there are many trees, entire forests have been felled on this one question of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But maybe at least for a start, I suspect one lesson we might derive from it is that he's God and I'm not. He doesn't have to answer all my questions. And that'll get you kind of a long way in life, I think. So while it can be said that while all kinds of people are making all kinds of choices for good or ill, for for which they're held to account, it must also be said that God is at work in it and that it works toward his good and gracious and perfect will and it will in the end terminate to the good. A famous example, a little snippet of this sort of playing out in a story is in the last part of Genesis when Joseph's brothers uh, essentially kind of kidnapped him, uh, faked a murder, sold him into slavery. We know that they chose to do that. We know that their motives were evil. And yet, later in his life, Joseph uh, meets those same brothers. And he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, you know, here's a guy looking at the singular, most devastating part of his life, his imprisonment, his enslavement, and he's saying that that came about because of the choice of his brothers, but he summarizes that as involving not one actor, but two. Actors with utterly differing and completely conflicting motivations, God and Joseph's brothers. So Joseph never cries out, you know, where was God? Nor does he act as if, you know, there, there weren't some human decision-making and motives in the mix. He just affirms the fulsome truth of it, not excusing his brother's evil actions and affirming God's sovereignty in all of it, you know, to ordain it for the good. So what's Joseph doing there? He's affirming God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He is affirming what Paul says in Acts 17, that in him we live and move and have our being. Deep water, strong wine of the gospel. So what are we to make of this thing about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Well, one scholar I found to be particularly helpful, he said, you know, one way to think about this is to look through the lens of one of these plagues. To, you know, the plagues are revealing the person of God, they're revealing his activity in the world. What if we looked at, at 
Pharaoh's heart through the lens of the plague of the hail. You know, the hail is the seventh plague. It's kind of the point of no return plague. Uh, This is the plague that sets off a series of events from which God says there will be no end. The train has left the station, and I am pouring out my wrath upon Egypt. Now, as anyone who's ever been around hail knows, it is hard, it is cold, it is destructive. And also, hail is formed over time and under certain conditions. uh, Warm, moist air rises, ice crystals form and cohere, and when they become too heavy for the air currents to carry anymore, they fall, and they do a lot of damage. So when God says in chapter 9, at this time tomorrow, I'll send the worst hailstorm Egypt has ever seen, you know, he could have also said in the same breath, even now, the ice is beginning to form. And no one would have taken that as a contradiction, right? We, we would have seen, in fact, that he is using and managing and directing, controlling how everything operates, however he chooses. And, 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 and we look through this lens to understand that what's true of kind of the physical world, what's true, you know, is also true in the hearts of people. That he's made us in such a way that our choices matter, that they crystallize, they cohere in such a way that our character is formed over time and under all kinds of conditions, sort of like hail. There's something of that going on in the heart of Pharaoh, the the stubborn insistence that you are not God, I am God, choices all along the way until it finally becomes too hardened, too cold, too heavy, and there is no going back. But the good news, and there is much good news, is that the Lord does not stand apart from that. He doesn't leave us to the icing over of the heart. But he reveals himself, he makes his presence known, he engages with his people so that we would bear witness to his wonders and all their terrible power and might, that our hearts wouldn't do what they would naturally do under the natural conditions, which is grow cold and hard and heavy. But he intervenes to the end that we might see, that we might have his person revealed to us and be moved to a repentance and that the heart would be warmed. That we would know that the same power that brings desolations upon the earth brings redemption to a people who, left to their own hearts, simply cannot choose the good for themselves. They can't. I mean, it is a striking thing that the last words we hear from the enslaved people before they're redeemed and led out of Egypt is one of complaint, not complaint about Egypt, complaint about the Lord. They are despairing at the very prospect of their own redemption and imagining that bad as things are, God is going to make it worse. That's the last thing they say before God sets them free. And I just want to say, what a picture. What a picture of the natural state of our hearts. Because who among us, who among them can say that we've been deserving of the redemption or that that we even would have chosen it? But what we can say for certain is that God has worked his wonders in the direction of a divine mercy, of a great salvation, that he has made a people for himself and destined them for deliverance so that we don't receive judgment, we receive salvation. The beginning of John's gospel, he attests to bearing witness to a great wonder. He says, the wonder that he and many others beheld, that God revealed was that the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God sent Jesus as a wonder, as a redeemer, to reveal his person, his power, his presence, and also to disclose our hearts before him, that we might be moved to a repentance and to grace. And he came to a people who, frankly, had already made their choice, who chose slavery over salvation, labor over liberation, oppression over freedom, a false dream of independence over relationship with the God who made them, and yet the plague that should have fallen upon us, he took upon himself that we might live. That is the power of God for salvation. That is a wonder, that is a great grace, and that is life. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. I'm thankful for the hard stuff in the Bible. Um, as much as it hurts my brain, as much as it takes me to places that are uncomfortable, Lord, we are grateful that you reveal yourself, that you take us to the place where we understand, where we get the greatest gift, which is to know you and to know ourselves truly. And so, Lord, that is the grace. Those are the operations, the mechanism that calls us to a repentance and to a faith and to grace and life in you. Lord, you know the paucity of, our, of, of, of us navigating life on our own, and you have intervened, and we praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would attend, us at this, attend to us at this table and feed us here so that the word which we have heard, Lord, in a sense, we might be nourished by here at the table to the end, that we would not just benefit in a, in a personal journey of faith, but that many would come to know you through us who have been given such a great grace and a great liberation and a great freedom. We celebrate that today. It kind of takes our breath away, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.